1: This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Ian Hannah Mansing. Welcome to Checkups Ask Me Anything podcast, and today it's our AMA about wildfire prevention.
2: Ask me anything. About
1: a thousand wildfires continue to devastate the country. It's Canada's worst wildfire season on record
0: this summer's wildfire season is being described as a challenging marathon and there's no end in sight
2: the boreal is really going through a massive slow motion transformation right now and turning into a much more flammable place please please be aware of where there are campfire restrictions and make sure that you're not contributing to the problem
1: Canada is experiencing its worst wildfire season on record, and it's not over yet. So far, more than a 1,000 active wildfires have burned through a land area larger than the country of Greece. The massive toll is devastating. More than 300 properties have been lost in B.C. alone, while nearly 70% of Northwest Territory residents are under evacuation order right now. That includes Yellowknife and Hay River. Our AMA guest is Lori Daniels, a professor of forced ecology at the University of British Columbia. She answered questions about wildfires, how to prevent them, how to adapt in this new climate change reality. And here are some highlights from the show. Professor Daniels, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Ian.
1: Let me though ask you about the cause of wildfires because sometimes that can be controversial and uh, people can can question that. But as you look at, I mean, you can look at BC if you want specifically, or more broadly across Canada as we go through this worst wildfire season on record. What, what's what's causing these wildfires?
2: Yeah, so for a wildfire to burn, we need to have fuel that is dry enough. Anybody who's tried to have a campfire with wet fuel knows that it won't catch and it won't burn. But if you have fuels, if we have forests and vegetation types that are in droughty conditions and are very dry... They're available to burn. You need an ignition to get them started and oxygen to keep fueling that fire. And so these are the circumstances that we're seeing in many places across Canada. Droughty conditions, extreme heat, low humidity and ignition. Largely, most of our fires um, that we have here in BC that have resulted in these big uh, wildfires that are having such impact have been through lightning outbreaks as weather systems come through and ignite multiple fires at once very hard to control when they're pushed by the wind they grow to these large fires which, with big impacts. So the weather combined with the condition in the forest is really critical for driving these wildfires this year.
1: Now, sometimes we'll hear, maybe it's shorthand in the industry, uh, but about human-caused fires, and uh, a lot of people then assume that that's arson, which must happen in some cases. But take us through some of the other things that could come under the category of human-caused fires.
2: Yeah, a small proportion of fires are arson where people intentionally went out to cause harm by starting a fire. But there's many unfortunate ways in which human ignitions occur unintentionally. So that could be as simple as a campfire that we thought we'd put out or had not extinguished properly that flares up again in the heat of the next day after you've left camping. It could be, unfortunately, a cigarette butt or some other incendiary device out a car window Um, when we're not taking care to extinguish those cigarettes properly. It could be an ATV vehicle that heats up and generates heat, driving off-road and stopping or pausing, causing the grass or the the vegetation underneath the engine to heat up and start smoldering. You could ride away and not even know you'd started a fire. Hmm. So you can imagine all these human causes, many of them are kind of recreational or they're along transportation corridors. Sometimes they're industrial ignitions, accidental through heavy equipment and the like. They could also create the spark to start a fire. Railways, sometimes spark fires along the railway lines. So our transportation corridors and the areas around our communities and where we like to recreate are very vulnerable to those human ignitions.
1: Professor Daniels, let's talk climate change, because for some people Mm -hmm. uh, there, you know, it's obvious the link uh, for others. I think you know this. uh, They still will uh, sort of doggedly say, wait a second, like, let's not jump to conclusions here. You're the person that studies this. You're a professor. uh, Talk to us about uh, the role of climate change when we look at the number of wildfires we're seeing this summer.
2: Yeah, so we know that with climate change, there's three patterns that are happening that are feeding these wildfires. One, so we're getting prolonged droughts um, in the depths of the summer, and those droughts are hotter and drier than they have been um, in many instances in the past. Our fire seasons are starting earlier, so fires are starting in April and May, and the fire season is extending well into September. And last year in Western Canada, we had fire ignitions well into October. So much longer fire season, much deeper droughts, and we're seeing these heat zones that set up that crank the temperature up drop the humidity down and create opportunities for lightning outbreaks that are igniting multiple fires at once that are exceeding our suppression capabilities. So this combination of weather is being driven by the increased warming of our global environment and it really links to these high-pressure systems, these heat domes that we see occurring in various parts across the country that prime those forests and the vegetation for fire. And it only needs an ignition after that.
1: Let's go to the phones for a moment, though. Maggie Burtonshaw is here in Vancouver. Hi, Maggie.
0: Hello. I want to say that you're a very highly respected journalist in all our eyes out here.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I see in the notes here, Maggie, that you live not far from Pacific Spirit Park, a beautiful park, uh, sort of between Vancouver and UBC. Um, do you get nervous at all having, uh, you know, they're beautiful, but you have to have a forest so close to your home?
0: Well, I am a little anxious. It's 15 hectares, and it's four blocks away, Mm -hmm. and it's full of hundreds of people every day. It's a great dog-walking park, Mm -hmm. and no doubt there are a few homeless living in the deep woods there somewhere. There Mm -hmm. always has been.
1: And so as you see, I mean, we've been lucky, obviously, in Vancouver, uh, generally, but certainly this summer, we see the stories, we see what's happening within our own province. But other than smoke in the air, we've been uh, untouched by the wildfires. But as you see that, is there anything that you've done or want to do in terms of changing your approach to things?
0: Well, first of all, I'd like to have some information about prevention. Perfect, yeah. I have written to uh, Vancouver Fire Rescue Services, UBC Mm -hmm. Fire Rescue Services, Mayor Sim, Premier Eby, Mm -hmm. and Joyce Murray, our MP federally, and I haven't had a reply from anybody. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was about 10, my grandfather was a fire warden, because it was World War II, mm-hmm. and even though we weren't in Europe, in Vancouver we had blackout curtains and we had fire wardens and we had uh, practices and so on, but I don't see anything about prevention for Keresdale, uh, Point Grey, Dunbar, Southwest Marine Drive, and Kitsilano, which would be flattened if there was a fire in that 15-hectare park.
1: All right, Maggie. Well, thank you very much for calling. I really appreciate that. And I can put a version of that question to our guest here on this Ask Me Anything, uh, Lori Daniels, who's a professor actually at UBC. So not far, Maggie, from where you live. Um, so Professor Daniels, for people who aren't familiar with Vancouver, but I think they heard that uh, Maggie lives just four blocks away from a 15 hectare park. Um, anything that comes to mind for you that she should keep in mind?
2: Absolutely. And in many of our urban areas, not just in Vancouver, but other places, we're very proud of our green space and in our cities across Canada. But those urban forests, again, under hot, dry conditions could still be flammable. So if we're even in an urban forest under high or extreme fire danger, there's high risk that there's an ignition. If there's an ignition, it could become a spreading fire that could have tremendous consequences, especially in our urban areas. So those preventative measures, trying to make sure that we're following or obeying signs or um, obeying the requests from people, no smoking in the parks, um, when the fire danger is very high, being cognizant of that, um, making sure that we're not accidentally starting fires. But also, all of us could also be taking those fire-smart actions I um, own a home in North Vancouver, owned a home in North Vancouver. I had fire-smarted that property. When the roof needed to be replaced, I replaced it with an inflammable metal roofing material. I had landscaped my my garden according to fire-smart principles with rock gardens adjacent to the house. I'd removed the highly flammable cedars and junipers from the landscaping and went with more broadleaf shrubs. Um, that were less flammable in the hot or in the heat of the summer when we're susceptible. I'd encourage everybody in Canada to take a look at the FireSmart Canada or in your individual provinces, the FireSmart websites. They have fantastic advice for homeowners, for communities, and for um, municipalities to get engaged and involved. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose.
1: Hi, how are you? I'm good. What uh, question do you have for Professor Daniels? Well, here in Montreal, we've been dealing with a lot of forest fire smoke uh, this summer. And uh, like BC, uh, Quebec is a province that depends a lot on its forestry industry. And my question uh, is something that I heard. I think maybe I saw it on social media or something uh, in the midst of some smoke that we've had this summer. Is that there's a connection between clear-cut logging practices and forest fires. That somehow clear-cutting might make forest fires uh, more likely or uh, larger or in, in some way make them more destructive. And so I wanted to ask your guests um, if there's any kind of evidence. I, when I saw that, I'd, I'd certainly never heard that before, but I've, I've traveled in northern Quebec and I've, I've seen some evidence of that, and I know the same is true in B.C. So I'd love to know if there's, if there's any connection between that. All right, Jesse, thank you very much for your question. And I feel like, Professor Daniels, you're the perfect person to ask this to. What's, what's your answer?
2: Absolutely. So I teach in a faculty of forestry where we talk about forest management, sustainable forest management practices. And I would say one of the things that's become evident to us is that our silvicultural practices, our management of forests, the way we harvest them and regenerate forests afterwards, can contribute to wildfires. And there's been some unintended consequences of our landscape level management in different forest types. So when we harvest trees, we leave a lot of residual material on the ground, the treetops, the branches, some of the smaller stems that aren't going to be um, taken out of the forest and then produced into the forest products that we're interested in, like the 2 by 4s or the timber values or the pulp and paper for for paper production. So if we leave too much material, leftover material or forestry residues on the ground, they're going to dry out and they're kindling to burn. So there's two options that we use commonly in British Columbia. Most commonly, we pile that up and burn it on the side of the road. I think a more effective, and one of the tools that we've described as more effective and there's growing evidence, is to use broadcast burning. Now, this seems odd because we're going to use fire to ultimately fight fire, but burning off those cut blocks and burning off those forestry residues that's the kindling for a potential future fire Burning that off under cool, wet conditions in the spring or fall through a broadcast burn puts the ash back into the soil, the nutrients back into the soil and over the whole area of your cup block so that when you're regenerating the trees, that ash and nutrient is distributed across the area and can help for new trees to establish and to grow. What we've discovered is where we've not been doing that. We stopped doing it in the 1990s thinking we were putting smoke in the atmosphere and that was a bad thing, which we do need to be concerned about that as well. But by leaving all those residues on the ground, there's material that is now, when fires burn, they burn into that material. They burn the small seedlings and saplings that are growing up as the next generation of trees. And that's contributing to both the spread of the fires and the death of the trees that we planted, thinking that we were sustaining the forest and timber production over the long term. We can also be planning where our cut blocks go on the landscape and how we configure them so that we can actually use proactive forest management that generates some revenues and economic gain, but we could make those cut blocks in areas of the landscape where we also create fuel fences and fire breaks so that a fire is spreading towards a community. We have areas where the forest structure and composition is changed that could be used as a jumping off point for fighting mm-hmm. fire before it spreads right up to a community. Yeah. So we can adapt our forest management to improve and be better prepared in future.
1: You know, you've explained very clearly why uh, setting fires, at, you know, controlled uh, ignitions in some situations can can help prevent bigger fires later. So I understand that. Also, it's interesting, though, you pointed out that, you know, people have concerns about that. For example, the, the carbon emissions. Uh, but l- let's talk a little bit about carbon emissions. And, and I think a lot of people um, are, are looking at the amount of fire that's happened in Canada this year, the smoke that people saw in Montreal and Toronto and now in Vancouver, uh, how would you compare the carbon emissions from these wildfires to, to other sources in Canada of carbon emissions?
2: Well, we know that this year our carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions from the fires is more than double than we've had in previous fire seasons. There's a massive amount of greenhouse gas being emitted from these fires. Remember, these fires are large. They're burning under extreme drought. They're very intense. They're consuming the above-ground trees and up in the boreal forest, they're burning into those organic soils, and they are consuming the peat and dried-out organic soils and releasing that carbon into the atmosphere as well. We know um, from past, past fire seasons as well that we're emitting here in British Columbia in 2017 and 2018 When we burned over a million hectares in each of those years, we were emitting two and a half to three times more carbon from the wildfires into the atmosphere than all our other carbon um, emissions combined. Mm -hmm. This year, we've burned almost 1.9, over 1.9 million hectares. We're going to have tripled, at least tripled, how much carbon is emitted from fire this year relative to all other carbon emissions. We need to get this under control When we do prescribed burns, the burns are in controlled areas. They are under cooler and wetter conditions, so the fire is not as intense. It does release some carbon into the atmosphere, but it reduces the fuel. So it creates a fuel break so that when wildfire does burn across the landscape and it hits these areas previously burned with a prescribed burn, Mm -hmm. whether it's with silviculture or ecosystem restoration or um, Indigenous cultural fire stewardship, those fuel breaks actually slow down fires and they give us jumping mm-hmm. off points to try to stop wildfires. All right. So uh- adding fire back into the landscape gives us a healthy mosaic and a more resilient landscape. So ultimately we can reduce carbon emissions with a short-term cost.
1: Okay. Professor Daniels, the the clock is not our friend right now. We're running uh, towards the end of the program. I've got about three minutes. And what I want to do is take another call. Um, So Jasmine, uh, what's your question for Professor Daniels?
2: Um, Well, you sort of have answered it, but uh, basically uh, we have like a huge uh, property where there's about maybe a hundred campsites and there's lots of forests, a lot of of trees. And a lot of the trees grow close together and there's been lots of uh, fallen dead wood all over the forest so behind our cabin we removed all of that dead stuff all of the dead branches and wood and trees and everything and we just burned it in our campfire and I'm just wondering is that harming any of the ecosystem like I was wondering you know like if I we tell other people that they should clean up some of the dead wood all around their forested area is that bad because we're hurting the, the earth
1: All right. Thank you for the question. Professor Daniels, go ahead.
2: Okay. Well, you've just described are some of the principles of fire smarting. So reducing the density of the trees, reducing the small trees in the forest that act as a ladder, connecting the materials, the burnable material on the ground that connect to small trees to medium-sized trees up into the canopy. Those are ladder fuels. We want to remove those ladder fuels from the forest by thinning out the smaller trees but leaving the big trees that are good for wildlife habitat and are good for being resilient to fire and casting shade as you've just described. Leaving a few dead trees behind, especially the big ones that are important for birds and insects and other wildlife habitat, leaving the big logs down on the ground can be okay once in a while as long as we keep the number of them low. But let's get rid of the small kindling off of the forest floor. Let's move that into your campfires and remove it from the site to make your site more fire-safe, do it for your homes, do it, encourage it in your neighborhoods, and work with your local parks to make sure in your campgrounds, they also have reduced those fuels to make sure that all of us can coexist with wildfire in a safe and adaptive and resilient way. Those are great ideas, and I'm glad to hear people are out there doing this on their own properties and encouraging others as well.
1: Yeah, Professor Daniels, uh, thank you very much for taking part in the Ask Me Anything.
2: I'm glad to be here. Thank you so very much.
1: That was a portion of Cross-Country Checkup's AMA about wildfire prevention with Lori Daniels. She's a professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia. If you'd like to listen to yesterday's full two-hour edition of Cross-Country Checkup, you can find it by downloading or streaming the podcast at cbc.ca slash checkup or the CBC Listen app. And if you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Mansing. Thanks for listening. The next live edition of Checkup airs on CBC Radio 1 and CBC News Network next Sunday. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.